all the depictions of the Sermon on the Mount I've ever seen, paintings and movies, depictions that I've seen, you always picture Jesus preaching to a great crowd, which he eventually did. When you go over uh, to the Holy Land and you're on the Mount of Beatitudes, it shapes, the, uh, on top of the, the mount, if you will, it shapes down into kind of like a bowl, which looks like a natural amphitheater all the way down to the shore of the lake. But at, Matthew actually tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd, he takes the disciples and he puts, uh, pulls them up the mountain. Apparently, they were down the mountain and the crowd was gathering And when he saw them, he takes them up and he sat them down and then said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. He wanted them specifically to hear something that only those who had committed at least the way they did to following him needed to hear. That they needed to hear and someday come to understand it's not for, the Sermon on the Mount is not for what you would call the nominal believer. It's not very evangelistic, if you, if you get my drift. It's not meant for those out there that we're trying to reach. It's offensive, in a word. It's shocking. And it's tempting, always, to round it off or sand it down, uh, to make it rhetorical, because it's just too darn hard to apply to our real lives. And I guess... That's what I've been trying to get at, I guess, when we talk of the difference between these two churches in Revelation 13, the church of the beast, the church of the lamb that was slain. You know, through her history, the church has looked for a substitute to the first love that God gave her. Nation and empire is what the world has, so why not use the world when it comes to operating the church? When we studied the history in the seven churches, there was a critique and praise for each of the churches throughout her history. Two, though, received no rebuke, the second one and the second to the last one. Smyrna was being martyred right and left by a national force. Philadelphia, on the other hand, was commended for doing her work with no power. For 1260 years, the church had been aligned, if you will, with these national powers, Catholic and Protestant. But this church, Philadelphia, was not seeking, nor was she using any sort of national power. You ever wondered why? See, when the two powers come together, there's the national part, there's the nation part, and then there's the church part. Maybe in this particular case, for the first time in a long time, the national part was trying an experiment. An experiment that said that the people living here would be free and that part of their freedoms would be religious freedom. So in a way, when Jesus commends this Philadelphia church, he's also commending the nation, at least on this one thing, on this one thing this experiment to allow everyone to be free and to even codify it, to put it in our laws. If you think about it, we've gone over it before, but the Constitution without the Bill of Rights would be a document that would just further codify the white supremacy, the racism, the resulting slavery. Without the Bill of Rights, that's what it would be. With the Bill of Rights, something else happened. It took a long time, it took too long to at least begin to have our laws reflect the equality that we believe that all men were created equal. And it's been a long time since there wasn't an alliance written between a nation and a church, 1260 years before this time. A long time where this experiment was not even being attempted at least. The church part? We went over that a little and have been going over it quite, quite a lot. Whenever we examine the same ways with, that we codify our laws, our scripture, the way that we make it law in our lives, the way that we make it doctrine, the way that we make it lifestyle, we question the motives for worshiping God, who belongs, who doesn't. 
And anything short of freedom, anything short of free will, anything short of making our choice to be able to love God and love our neighbor as ourself is simply violence. It's what we learned last week. And the church without that will always be tempted to weaponize scripture, weaponize the Bible, weaponize the cross, weaponize prayer as we studied last week. Make Jesus a man of war, barely recognizable from the Bible's picture of Jesus to us. Jesus told the church of the day, we played, he said, you're like children, you tell me we played the flute for you and you did not dance. Jesus wouldn't play the games that they wanted to play. They wouldn't shortcut God's love to love God, to love neighbor as a self. He was offering the kingdom to, to people who clearly did not belong. And he was taking the kingdom away for those who think they belong because they either believe they aren't sinners anymore or at least they're not as bad as these other sinners that the kingdom shouldn't belong to. They were using the gospel as a weapon to protect their self-righteousness, to, to protect their place. And when the temptation to use that power, the beast is always waiting to be able to help you use that power. So the sermon's offense is that it short circuits us whenever we want to take that shortcut. Whenever we even begin to believe that manipulation or fear or force or coercion, maybe, maybe even just a little, that the ends will justify the means. But the sermon is an offense to that. It immediately stops it. So the Beatitudes make it hard because he immediately delineates who are the most blessed in the kingdom of heaven. Who is it that are the most blessed in the kingdom of heaven? It's almost the opposite of who are the most blessed here. Blessed are the poor, what? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. All those put a person in a place of what? In a place of need. They all need something, don't they? They all need something. It places them in a place of need. Now the world, especially here in America, is rewarded or based rewarded on what we would call a meritocracy. That's what we are, aren't we? It's based on merit. We reward in this culture and in this country based, our culture and our economy are driven by it. We are rewarded according to merit. There's nothing wrong with that, except that when meritocracy is done across the board, who does it leave behind? Quite a few people, right? And usually they're what? Poor, mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsty. But we may not have noticed that Jesus is living in and speaking to followers who live supposedly in a theocracy, right? Supposedly, God is their king which they said that God was their king, but then they insisted on having their own king, but their religion is intertwined with their government. Throw in the empire that is occupying them and has been for 300 years and will for another 400 after this. They're in a kind of meritocracy too, aren't they? So we studied the church of the day last week. Didn't they believe in meritocracy? that if you were favored by God, you wouldn't be any of those things, right? They believed that if you pleased God, then he would take care of this for you. So their meritocracy, again, was elite. But has living out their laws, the way that they've decided to live them, have they begun to leave people behind too? If it wasn't so, Jesus wouldn't have them to point out to. They've left behind as many poor, mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsty as any other meritocracy would. 
So the Beatitudes changed the tone a bit, anticipating something like this will lead them to. So his sermon of offense changes a little bit and it changes from what they are to who they could be. And the most blessed, he says, are what? Merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness sake, reviled and persecuted. Disciples of Jesus are in need of what only Jesus can give them. And when they receive them, they become like who? Like him, because if you think about it, isn't that his resume right there? Is he not merciful? Was he, is he, will he always be pure in heart? Was he a peacemaker? Well, you could argue, right? I didn't come to bring peace to the world, he said. I came to bring what? Came to bring war. But the war was the war to be able to establish love. It's how he fought it. It's what his weapons were that made him completely different from any other warrior that ever walked this earth. Was he persecuted for righteousness sake? Was he reviled and persecuted? All simply because he came to show one thing, the Father's love for them. See, now if the sermon was a Sabbath school lesson, right here is where we would take a textbook definition in Monday's lesson and say, what does it mean to be merciful, right? That's the way we would do it. We would, we would list it. We would go all the way through. And we'd look at textbook definitions of what it means, and so that would help us a little bit in maybe uh, coming up with a way that maybe we don't have to quite do exactly what it says when we move from here to there. But the thing was, was that Jesus knew he was giving a sermon. He knew he was, he was speaking to disciples who had to apply it right now. Right there, on the mountain. Real-time examples. The disciples knew, Jesus knew, that when they left the mountain, they were gonna have to face it. And they were gonna have to show people what it meant to be these things right here. It doesn't make it any easier. In fact, it gets harder. Beginning in verse 17 is all our relationship to the law of God and applying it to the only arena that matters to God. What is the only arena that matters to God when it comes to his law, your lifestyle, our decision to follow it, our decision to keep it? There's only one arena that it matters and that is how we treat other people. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. There's the commandment summed up too. And if it wasn't for physics that two commandments couldn't occupy the same place at the same time, it would be all one commandment. If I claim to love God but hate my brother, I'm a liar. Doesn't make it any easier. So first, in our scripture reading, he had to make something very clear because he knew who he was talking to. He knew where it was headed. I think by the time he gets to verse 17, the crowd has caught up to him. And who's in that crowd? Nominal believers, yes. There are some in there that are poor, tired, and hungry because they were the ones that flocked to him first. But then there are others in there who were listening last week and are listening this week. So he had to qualify what he was about to say. He said, don't think that I've come to what? To abolish the law of the prophets, I've come not to abolish, but to what? But to fulfill. Whatever he's about to say, he says, does not abolish, and it does not nullify, it fulfills. By the way, fulfills goes beyond keeping, doesn't it? Let's put it this way. Can I keep the Sabbath and still not be merciful? Of course I can. A lot of us are living proof of that at one time in our Adventist experience, right? But if I'm merciful and love God and love my neighbor as myself, I've not just kept the Sabbath, I fulfilled it. Fulfilled it completely in him, in his love, in his grace. He said, I came to fulfill. 
And, and he said, not one, Mike, Mike read it for us, not one jot nor tittle, not one T would be uncrossed, not one I would be undotted until what? Until heaven and earth pass away. By the way, is heaven and earth going to pass away? There is a time when it will. Because Jesus sits on the throne and says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I'm making all things new. Write these words, for they can be counted on. He's coming to make all things new. And the, citizen, the spiritual citizenship that we experience here on earth will soon be geographical also. There won't be a dichotomy between our spiritual citizenship and our geographical citizenship. We will be there with him as we were created to be. So he said, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. See, he knows his law, and he knows the law keepers that are sitting there listening to him. The law already defines a blasphemer as a commandment breaker, but the real offense to the commandment breaker is if he teaches others to do the same. Then the law in Leviticus and in Numbers allows that person to be stoned to death. He wanted them to know that he knows his law. Because he's not just going to, to um, appear maybe to break the letter of the law here as what he is going to preach. He is now teaching who? He's teaching others. And it's interesting. The law says that they should be stoned to death. Jesus said if they do, they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if there's a difference. I'm not 100% sure. Therefore, he says, whoever breaks one of these. By the way, therefore, being like God is not an option. Being like Jesus is not an option for those of us who claim to follow him. Is he talking about the results though? Is he talking about the law keeping, the commandment keeping? No, that's not what he's talking about. I tell you, unless you're what? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are the best of the best. He just, he just told them that, that unless you're the best of the best at being righteous at these acts, then you'll never ever see the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day, they've got the keeping down perfect. You can tell Paul, well actually you couldn't tell Saul that he wasn't a law keeper. He said, as unto the law, I was perfect. But he also knows that he was lost. He also knows that that standard of righteousness was not the standard of righteousness that Jesus was asking for. You'll never see the kingdom. It exceeds the law keepers. We know there were 613 of them, 248 commands, 365 prohibitions, all bolstered with 1,521 emendations. To avoid wrongfully using God's name, they quit using it at all. To avoid defiling the Sabbath, they outlawed 39 activities that might possibly be construed as work. And I hesitate bringing these up because immediately, immediately, we now condemn them for being legalists. That doesn't, just because they have these rules and these laws doesn't mean that they believe they're righteous because they are. Not every Pharisee believed that. In fact, I don't think there was any Pharisee who thought that they were saved because of this. But what they thought they could have been was right and more right than somebody who couldn't do this. And they treated them thusly. So Jesus begins going after this standard of righteousness with a phrase that he's gonna use a few times. You have heard that it was said, and what? But I say to you. He's gonna use it a few times. What the law says on paper 
And what I say to you, what the commandment says on the tablet and the possibilities that the commandment has in the flesh, that the commandment has written upon the heart. That's what he's saying. And what I say, he says, fulfills the commandment. You've heard it said to those of those of ancient times. You've heard it said, which includes it all. All the commentary written about the, uh, the next commandment, all of the, everything that, that, that's given about murder. You've heard it said of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to what? Shall be liable, liable to judgment. But I say to you, but I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the what? To the hell of fire? Are you kidding me? Angry? So look at that when it comes to standard of righteousness. If I think I know the commandment, if I think I've completely fulfilled the commandment because I've managed to restrain from strangling the life out of somebody, Jesus said, don't murder. How about don't be angry? See, it's anger that leads to the violation of this law. Where? In the heart. It won't lead to it on the tablet, will it? If I'm angry with somebody, does that violate the law on the tablet? It does not, does it? Because all the tablet says is don't what? Don't murder. Jesus is going after a deeper level of righteousness. He's going after the only righteousness that matters. The righteousness found where? The reason for not murdering somebody. It's a good starting point. Congratulations, you got through the day without killing anybody. But a disciple of Christ sits down and says, but did I, did I meet your standard today, Lord? Did I love them as you loved me? And usually we all know the answer to that every day, don't we? No. See, it's a matter of the heart. That's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is it takes the law where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes never dreamed it could go. Here. Anger leads to the mouth. The mouth says what? Insults. Even gets to the point where it calls them a fool. So the solution would be just don't do it. But Jesus says, no, go further. <laughs> don't, don't be angry, but now go even further. When you're offering a gift at the altar, now when you're being religious, when you're worshiping me, he says, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother or your sister, and then come offer your gift. Be what? Be reconciled. He's saying that anger in our hearts has caused a disruption between the love of you and me. He said, don't come to offer me a gift. Go be reconciled to your brother. Reconciled. And then we remember what we were given. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new what? A new creature. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to who? To us. Greg, it was done for you. Now go do it for somebody else. So now we're down to where I wanted to be to study a little further about the violence that we talked about last week. What may be the most difficult commands to live by in our day. It's hard enough not to, uh, if, if you will, to, to refrain from violence on one side. It's hard enough to, to not harbor anger in my heart for somebody else. It's hard enough, right? It's even harder though, if we've been, had violence done to us. Because that's where he goes next with this.
You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, then what? Turn the other also. See, anger in the heart can lead to an insult with the mouth. And once the insult comes out of the mouth, it's now done violence to somebody else. The violence that was done to my own heart and the reconciliation that it broke on this side is bad enough. But when it comes out of the mouth, I've now done violence to somebody else. So what happens when violence is done to somebody else? See, again, the law says that it's legal to retaliate as long as you what? As long as you retaliate in kind. That's fair, right? An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. It's legal. So as long as you retaliate in kind, then the law says you're reconciled. It's done. The law says. But we know our heart doesn't work that way, don't we? Right? We know that reconciliation doesn't come that way, do we? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth doesn't cut it. Not even close does it come to reconciling the two parties. Not even close. Violence doesn't work that way, and Jesus knows it. Say I'm in a righteous state, which means I can't think of anybody who has anything against me. I'm just walking down the street, minding my own business, right? And somebody walks up to me and he hits me right here, slugs me right in the mouth on the right side. Now he may have a perfectly good reason for doing so. Just because I don't know or remember that I did something to to garner this doesn't mean that it didn't happen. He may have a perfectly good reason to do so. But is my stinging cheek reminding me of whatever it was I did to deserve this? No. My stinging cheek is telling my heart that it's time to what? That it's time to retaliate. Because the law says I can retaliate as long as it's kind. You punch me on this cheek, I get to punch you on that one. So I do. Chances are, though, when I get hit the next time, it won't be for that original reason that he hit me the first time. It's going to be why? Because I hit him the first time. He's going to come back at me for the violence I caused to him because of the violence that he caused to me. Which may have been started by some violence, probably something with my mouth earlier. I may have called him a fool. Violence is a spiral. And it doesn't allow for things to happen. So note what turning the other cheek can do. What can turning the other cheek do? It stops that spiral. And that's the only thing we have control over, by the way. I turn my cheek, at least I stop that spiral. I stop the retaliation of me hitting them. I stop it right there. I might get hit again. We may get hit again. You turn the other cheek and and, and not offer any resistance, a punch may be coming. But you know what? Eventually, they're gonna get tired. We may get hit a few times, but eventually, they're gonna get tired. And it changes the process. And it gives a new process an opportunity. That's all we're looking for is an opportunity. Violence slams the door on that opportunity. It will not open it again. So that's why he can continue this way then. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, tell them to take what? Give them more than what they sued you for. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow for you. See, I used to say that turning the other cheek used to change the other person's mind or at least change their motive. I don't say that anymore. It only creates the opportunity for it to happen. Violence will never create that opportunity. 
So he said earlier, even before we get here about lawsuits, he said, if you're on your way to court for a lawsuit, settle with them before you get there. You know why? Because a lawsuit never reconciled two brothers. One is going to lose and one will always have lost. Violence slams the door that turning the other cheek at least opens. They may not take it, but that's not on us, is it? They may not take it, but that isn't on us. We may walk away beaten. But love off the law of the commandment, off the paper, written on the heart, allows me to walk away in him. He lays it on too. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be children of your father. For for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What did Jesus just kind of say right there? That he may be my enemy, but he's not God's, right? Because even if he's unrighteous, God gave him the what? The sun gave him the rain. If God bestows blessings on those that he loves, you don't get much more basic a blessing than the sun and the rain, do you? It's a love that only Jesus could give. And I remember this, not because I look at others and say, okay, okay, well, only Jesus can love that guy because I know that I can't. I don't look at it that way. I look at it because I was his enemy and he loved me. You were his enemy at one time and he loved you. And while we were yet enemies, he died for us we at least can be open to the possibility that maybe somewhere down the line, as God works with this and continues to work with this, we keep the door open, we don't slam it with violence, and someday, maybe someday, we'll be able to love as we have been loved. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. It's draining, isn't it? If I was there, I'd say, Lord, stop. You're killing me. Because I'm not even close. Are you? What I'm wanting to do is retaliate. What I'm wanting to do is to live the righteousness that only the law, the letter of the law will give me. And I know what I'm willing to forgive is so far short that what I'm supposed to be able to forgive, which by the way, if I can't do it, if I simply cannot do it, it, I don't have the capacity in me. If I'm still too traumatized, if I'm still too triggered, if I'm still too angry, if I just can't do it and my heart is, is a heart of stone, guess what? That places me in need, doesn't it? And if I'm in need of him, I get to go back to him and say, Lord, I need to be with you because I am so poor in love and spirit and grace and I need you to fill me again today. Forgive Forgive me and cleanse me of my unrighteousness and give me another shot. Give me another shot. How many times will he do that for you? Seven? When Peter said that, he thought he was going to the wall because the law only said once, right? Eye for an eye. Peter thought he was going to the wall with it. He thought, wow, seven, I'm gonna impress Jesus because he thinks, I'm gonna make him think I can, re, I can forgive somebody seven times. And Jesus comes back and short circuit that right there. He goes, how about 70 times seven? But we hate being in need, don't we? 
We hate being indebted. We hate confessing that we fall short. We hate needing forgiveness. To somebody who claims to be a disciple, it's shameful. Do you ever notice in, in, in Romans 1, Paul says the first thing when he gives the theme of Romans, if you will, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. See, because as a Pharisee, he should be ashamed for not being righteous enough. A Pharisee would be ashamed to have to be given righteousness. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who would believe. Not be a champion at the law like me. Not walk around on my own standard of righteousness. But to be perfect in Christ. I'm not ashamed of that, he says. Because it's written from faith to faith. The righteous one shall live by what? By faith. I'm not ashamed. So, over the past 2,000 years, has the church dealt very well with the Sermon on the Mount? It's obvious we haven't, right? Because of the temptations that we have, because of where we are, the church found it just as exasperating as it was for me to say the words to you. And so we immediately then begin to wonder if Jesus could be speaking metaphorically here. Because what happens is the first time we encountered it, we went out there and we tried to do it, right? And we got slapped down pretty hard. And we have been. So over the years, we get tired of that. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, the attempts that we've made to try to live out the Sermon on the Mount or actually not live out the Sermon on the Mount and feel okay about it. Those, that, that's what the church has tried to do. Thomas Aquinas, he said, divided Jesus' teaching into precepts and the councils, which in more modern language, we might name requirements and suggestions. Precepts encompassed universal moral laws like the Ten Commandments, but for the more idealistic commands, such as Jesus' statement about anger and lust, Aquinas applied a different standard. Though we should accept them as a good model and strive to fulfill them, they don't have the force of the other. By the way, the church codified that into mortal and venial sins. Martin Luther interpreted the Sermon on the Mount in light of Jesus' formula, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Christians maintained a dual citizenship, he said. One in the kingdom of Christ and one in the kingdom of the world. I agree with that, don't you? I agree with that. The extremism in the Sermon on the Mount applies absolutely to Christ's kingdom, but not to the world's, is what he said. Take the commands to love your enemies and don't resist an evil person. Of course these don't apply to the state, he says. In order to prevent anarchy, a government must resist evil and repel enemies. Therefore, a Christian should learn to separate the office from the person. A Christian soldier, say, must carry out orders to fight and kill even when following Christ's law of love for enemies in his heart. That's Luther's opinion. That's the Protestant's attempt to not quite live out what Jesus was so plain and clear to teach us. See, it's beyond difficult because the sermon has words that need to be applied. In worship and study, we can stay on the page. We can speculate the meaning. We can, we can wonder if Jesus meant them to be metaphorical or not. And by the way, as a preacher, I have no delusions about the spoken word's impact. I have no delusions about the impact a sermon can have. But did Jesus know who he was speaking to? Do you think he might have been tempted to curb his language a little bit because of who might have been in the audience? One thing I never thought of that, that Yancey points out is he said when Jesus said these words, he might, do you think he might actually be speaking to somebody who about 33 years ago had to bury a two-year-old boy because Herod had sent out an order to butcher every child in the villages under two years old? Do 
you think there was not one, maybe not the parent is there in the audience, but don't you think there's an adult who remembers that night and their baby brother and their baby sister? Do you think maybe they figured out that this wandering rabbi and miracle worker is the reason Herod did it? It's not like he's not speaking to people who have not experienced tragedy. It's not like he's not speaking to people who experienced trauma and violence from an enemy every day. He wasn't being metaphorical. And he's not doing it with us. He's not looking to let us off the hook for any of this. I am, (laughs) because I want you to like me still when I'm done. I love letting you off the hook because you like me after that, but I can't today. I can't let me, I can't let you. And the reason I can't is because it would be insulting as disciples of Christ to try to be let off the hook for the responsibility of the words that he gave us today, to love God, to love our neighbor as ourselves. However, he's not looking to drive us to despair or depression either. The tension, the ideal of the gospel, the grim reality of ourselves is real. A tension that on one hand says, anything that makes me feel comfort with God's moral standard, anything that makes me feel, ah, at last I arrived, at last I'm perfect, I am sinless, that's a cruel deception. But on the other hand, realizing that we don't measure up and never will, feeling uncomfortable with God's forgiving love, that's a cruel deception too. Remember, Paul ends in Romans 7 his constant fight with self by knowing that there is now and never will be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He gives us an answer, by the way. Jesus gives us an answer to the whole dilemma, to the whole tension. Guess what it is? Be ye therefore what? Perfect. I thought it was an answer. This makes it worse, doesn't it? Hang on. He said, perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Of all the perfections of God, of what makes God perfect, God has declared that the one thing that makes him perfect above all else is his love. The only motivation that God uses for any of us to strive to meet these ideals is his love. He uses nothing else. He doesn't use violence. He doesn't use force, fear, or or coercion. He uses only his love. And it's always been that way, by the way. He told Israel, for you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. By the way, this is written in the book of Deuteronomy. This is after after all the headaches that they've been giving him for 40 years. And it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord has set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. And you're a pain in the neck, he says. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, the king. The absolute ideals of the sermon are encompassed completely in the absolute ideal of his grace and his love for us. We don't find it anywhere else. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We simply ask for it. And in order to do that, we have to be in need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But the words, I've often wondered, I spent some time in a few books this week. So you indulge me for just a few more minutes, just a few more minutes. Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, I take this from uh, Philip Yancey's Soul Survivor's book, and the chapter on Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. He says, Tolstoy wrote this, religious systems 
tend to promote external rules. Judaism did so, as does Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. But Jesus introduced a different approach by refusing to define a set of external rules which his followers could then abide by with a sense of self-righteousness. So he writes in the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, Tolstoy, he writes in his book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, this passage. It says, the test of our observance of external religious teachings is whether or not our conduct conforms with their decrees. Observe the Sabbath, get circumcised, pay your tithe. Such conformity is indeed possible. The test of observance in Christ's teachings, however, is our consciousness of our failure to attain an ideal perfection. The degree to which we draw near this perfection cannot be seen. All we can see is the extent of our deviation. A man who professes an external law like someone standing in the light of a lantern fixed to a post. It's all around him, but there's no further for him to walk. A man who professes the teaching of Christ is like a man carrying a lantern before him on a long or not so long pole. The light is always in front of him always lighting up fresh ground and always encouraging him to walk further. Not bad for a novelist, huh? So what if those words written in Tolstoy's book end up in the life and the studies of a lawyer from India trained in London but practicing in South Africa in the 30s? Gandhi's commitment to nonviolence developed while he was working as a lawyer in South Africa. Demonstrating for civil rights, he was tossed off trains, ejected from hotels and restaurants, charged by mounted police and jailed. His protests seemed to be having little effect on the people who made and enforced the laws. Only after reading Tolstoy's The Kingdom of Heaven is Within You and corresponding with its Russian author, did Gandhi decide to accept the literal principles of the Sermon on the Mount, especially its words on peacemaking and loving one's enemies. Jesus says the words and lives the life and makes it possible. Tolstoy writes the words. Gandhi gets a hold of those words and decides to pattern his life on the Sermon on the Mount. A little on Gandhi, if you, if, you, if you let me. Is it okay? His most famous contribution, the technique of civil disobedience evolved gradually. Indian born, he trained as a lawyer in London, then moved to South Africa. He led marches, took his share of beatings, spent a few hundred days in jail, learned the discouraging results of protest under an oppressive regime. regime. Upon returning to India, he confronts a very different situation. Not a minority of community of Indians living in a strange land, but a majority, 500 million citizens strong in a subcontinent ruled by the British. After World War I, the British thought that, uh, the Indians thought that the British would reward their loyal service with more independence, but instead the colonial power clamped down with a series of harsh laws, not unlike the discriminatory laws in the American South. So the empire continues to tighten the screws. Gandhi mediated long, meditated long hours about the appropriate response. You know what he finally decided to do? he would call for a day of no activity at all. India would respond to its masters by simply refusing to cooperate. Shops would close, traffic would cease, the country would shut down for one day. We who live in its wake after dozens of adaptations around the world can easily miss the extraordinary nature of that one move. Nothing like it had ever been attempted before. Jesus, Tolstoy, Gandhi. He went after the economic system. I'll hurry up. They were shipping cotton. Britain was, was uh, harvesting cotton, shipping it to England to be milled, and then selling it back to the Indians at a huge price. Gandhi said, we need to break that chain. He commanded that everybody get their own spinning wheel and start spinning their own cotton. By the way, he did it for the rest of his life. He spun at least for an hour a day on its own, and when he was sitting in meetings and everything else, he would spin his own cotton. 
What's interesting is that the nation quickly after he died began to fall away from the ideals, but the leaders that he put in place in Indian parliament when they first gained independence, that's what they did during meetings. They spun their own cotton. So we know that he went after the salt. He started the 240 mile salt march. Britain was doing the same thing with salt. So he started this long walk to the sea, 240 miles. By the time he gets to the seashore, a million people had joined him. One million people. When they arrived at the coast, Gandhi waded into the, the, shallow, the shallow salt gathering pools, scooped up a fistful of salt, holding it in the air like a royal scepter, a symbol of defiance to the empire. Let India boycott the British, gather her own salt. Now just to add this, to appreciate Gandhi's mark on history, contrast the salt march with the American colonists' reaction to Britain's stamp tax. What did we do over the stamp tax? We went to war. We fought a war over it. But Gandhi surveyed the history of Europe, Christian Europe. He saw a series of wars fought over racial differences, fine points of religious doctrine, land borders, acts of colonial aggression. Yet Jesus himself had preached love for enemies, showed a spirit of sacrifice, not violence. Gandhi sought a new way of change, something closer to the spirit of Jesus. All in all, you know, he spent 2,338 days in British jails. And every time that they arrested him, he would go before the judge, uh, deny himself a right to trial, and say, give me the maximum sentence. It's because it's what he wanted anyway. It meant he had more time alone, more time to meditate. And later in his life, he formed a protest that proved to be most potent of all. You know how he topped it? He just simply refused to eat. He would time his fasts the way that military uh, leaders would time their their attacks. The ironies defy the comprehension. Voluntary starvation within a nation of hungry masses and one man's self-sacrifice opposing the most widespread empire in history. Against all odds, the tactics worked. Churchill fumed at the nauseating and humiliating spectacle of this one-time intertemple lawyer, now seditious fakir, striding half-naked up the steps of the viceroy's palace, there to negotiate and parley on equal terms with the representative of the king emperor. Meanwhile, Gandhi gained the reputation with his own people as Mahatma, the great soul. Lord Mountbatten, the last viceroy of India from England, a seasoned military commander, talking about the wars that came up to, led up to independence, those horrible, brutal wars, summed up uh, Gandhi's moral power with just one formula. He said, at a time when civil war was breaking across India, he said, on my western front, I have 100,000 crack troops and unstoppable bloodshed. On my east, I have one old man and peace. In commenting on, the sermon, on, on our passage that we looked at today, he suspects, he said, that Jesus says to show courage, be willing to take a blow, several blows. Show you will not strike back, nor you'll be turned aside. And when you do that, it calls on something in human nature. Something makes his hatred decrease and respect increased. I think Christ grasped that, and I've seen it work. Gandhi deeply felt sensibly, sensibility gradually took shape as a firm doctrine. Violence against another human being, even against a soldier firing into an unarmed crowd, contradicted everything he believed about universal human dignity. You cannot change a person's conviction through violence, he believed. Violence brutalizes and divides. It does not reconcile. If his supporters ever turned violent during one of his campaigns, Gandhi would just call it off. No cause, no matter how just, merited bloodshed. I'll die for the cause, he concluded, but there is no cause I'm prepared to kill for. So we know what happened next, right? Jesus speaks the words, lives the life, 
gives every follower an opportunity to be righteous and forgiven and reconciled and live the life. A Russian novelist picks that up. Gandhi picks it up and applies it. And his application finds its way to a Baptist seminary student in the American South the year of Gandhi's death. Dr. King actually began the seminary the year Gandhi was assassinated. He gained a vision, King said, of Gandhi. He was the first person I know of to live the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals. Somehow Gandhi found a way to mobilize a movement around Jesus' lofty principles of hope and love and nonviolence. King was looking for that. And he finds it in this Hindu. Like Gandhi, King looked to the Sermon on the Mount as a textbook for activism. But he notes this, he says, when I went to Montgomery as a pastor, I had not the slightest idea that I would later become involved in a crisis which nonviolent resistance would be accept, uh, applicable. I neither started the protest nor suggested it. I simply responded to the call of the people for a spokesman. When the protest began, my mind consciously or unconsciously was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount with its sublime teachings on love and to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance. Of all the things that, that I've told you before, I tried to pick something else out about Dr. King that I hadn't shared before, and it was this. Historians tell of King's encounter with Chicago's tough mayor, Richard Daly. The movement supporters were feeling betrayed, believing they had reached an understanding with Daly that would permit them to march through Chicago with police protection in exchange for calling off a boycott. But Daly had double-crossed them by obtaining a court order banning further marches. As was his style, King sat silent through most of the contentious meeting, letting others air their views. The mood was hostile, and it looked as if the meeting would break apart in bitterness. King finally spoke up with what an onlooker described as a grand and quiet and careful, calming eloquence. Let me say, he said, if you're tired of demonstrations, I'm tired of demonstrating. I'm tired of the threat of death. I want to live. I don't want to be a martyr. And there are moments when I doubt if I'm going to make it through. I'm tired of getting hit, tired of being beaten, tired of going to jail. But the important thing is not how tired I am. The important thing is to get rid of the conditions that lead us to march. A gentleman, you know, we don't have much. We don't have much money. We don't have much education. And of course, we have no political power. We have only our bodies. And you're asking us to give up the one thing that we have when you say, don't march. We have only our bodies, King said. And in the end, that's what brings the civil rights movement, the victory he had been seeking for so long. In 1964, in accepting his Nobel Peace Prize, King referred again to the principles he had learned from the Sermon on the Mount. When the years of role passed, when the blazing light of truth is focused on this marvelous age in which we live, <clears throat> men and women will know and children will be taught that we have a finer land, a better people, a more noble civilization because these humble children of God were willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Whatever you can do, to not retaliate, whatever you can do, don't ever be sold short on its power. It's powerful. Anytime that we can touch somebody with not violence, but actual love, whatever love that we have, and be held to the standard that Christ held us to, it's powerful. It'll change the world. Just some words and an act and a Russian novelist, and an Indian lawyer, and a Baptist preacher. And it's, it's disconcerting that we are where we are today, that it feels like since 1964 and 68 and 69 and 72, we've taken 12 steps back, right? But Jesus says, keep on. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be filled. Ask Jesus whatever you need for filling this week, and then go out and just one time, one time, be able to have a kind word, be able to not retaliate, and then bring our anger and everything unresolved back to him and ask, give me one more shot. And you know, if we spent more time together, as much as we supposedly love each other, that would help too. Thank you for the extra time. Thank you for holding on with me today. I really wanted to be able to share that with you. It was a blessing for me this week to uh, study this, to bring it to you.